From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. When finishing up college, there's an envy of those who know exactly what they want to do by those who are still at a loss upon graduation. That is where Dr. Charles George found himself at the end of his undergraduate studies. Upon graduation, Charles took a position working as a teacher in New York City as a way to avoid the draft. After teaching for a year, Charles was exhausted and he left the position to enroll in a master's program at Yale. While completing his master's and for five years afterwards, Charles worked as a community organizer focusing on welfare recipients and other low-income populations. It was his work here that led him to the Cambridge Somerville Mental Health Center. In this position, his role was to determine how to use and spend drug abuse prevention resources. Through this work, he started working with a program named CASPAR. Currently, Dr. Charles Deutsch is the director of the Harvard Catalyst Population Health Research Program. He is responsible for leading the operations of the program, which is the focal point for Catalyst community engagement and population health research translation activities. Welcome to the show, Dr. Deutsch. Thank you. Good to be here. Great to have you. We want to jump right in and find out how you made your way to academia. How did you find your way to Harvard and how did you settle into your niche? I had an unusual path to Harvard, and um, I think I've made an unusual niche um, while I'm here. It's been 22, 23 years that I've been here. Um, And as I think about it, I think about when I was first in school and, and, you know, in the 60s and 70s, um, Eric Erickson was was a very um, influential social thinker and psychologist, and he would talk about triple bookkeeping and the fact that you're born into a body with a certain biology and genetics, and then you're born into a family, um, and that family has certain characteristics, and then you're born in an era and and in a place that um, is different from other places and eras, and all of that um, has influence over what course your life takes. And um, so for me, you know, I, I can trace how, how some of that worked out. I was an outlier in my family. Um, and, uh, um, I grew up in, in Brooklyn and was born the year Jackie Robinson integrated, integrated baseball. And that was a sort of, there weren't any people in Brooklyn who weren't Brooklyn Dodger fans. And that meant a certain, a certain thing around kind of social justice, um, and um, I lived through the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, the year I graduated, 1968, was the year, of course, of, of the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. It was a highly political time. I was spent a year in New Haven uh, during the time that Bobby Seale, uh, one of the Black Panther leaders, was on trial for murder there. So um, there were just a lot of events in in my time and place um, that that sort of colored my subsequent uh, path. And I remember as a kid in Brooklyn thinking, oh, it would be great to be an academic. I remember thinking I wanted to do American studies. And when I when I got to Yale, it was 
um, largely around uh, staying out of the draft another year during the Vietnam War. But I thought, well, you know, Yale is the best American studies department, and I want to do American studies. And by the time I got there, and I had this completely idealistic view of what an academic is. I mean, I now know that academics work constantly to get things published and grants funded. But back back then in my head, an academic was somebody with leather on their elbows and, you know, um, who just could actually go around reading and thinking and teaching. And I thought, well, that would be great. But by the time I got to Yale, the tumult of the world, you know, kind of convinced me that there's no sitting back, that there's no point in studying when what seems to be needed is some some action. So, um, yeah, I think I was really a creature of my time and place um, in a lot of ways. Early in your career, you worked with a program called CASPAR. Can you tell us about that program, how it started, its evolution, and what it meant for you at the time? So CASPAR stood for the Cambridge and Somerville Program for Alcoholism Rehabilitation, and they had detox centers and halfway houses in Cambridge and Somerville and had made some ties to the stellar psychiatrists um, at Cambridge Hospital. Um, but And then at, a, at some point they got a grant from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism to try to prove that they could prevent alcohol abuse by having a school-based curriculum. Uh, and um, because um, they knew my work, I got hired into that program. Uh, and we started to both train teachers to teach about alcohol. These were the days when you could actually talk about responsible decision-making, even for kids, and talk about um, how one learns to become a responsible drinker, as most drinkers are. Um, and um, so we started to do that work, working on, uh, on a curriculum. And, and um, what, struck, what strikes me in retrospect about that is how much um, happens by accident, or if not by accident, how much you have to sort of keep your eyes and ears open and, and see where uh, doors have opened and opportunities have, have, have kind of been provided that need to be followed up. So one of the consequences of, of the work we were doing was that we were, we had recruited some peer educators, high school kids, and mostly we had the same limited sense of what kids could do. And we thought we need some kids around so we can, um, so we can test some of the activities that we were developing with teachers on these kids and find out if we were using the right words. I mean, it, that was as primitive, really, as our as as our understanding was of how you use um, how you use beneficiaries in developing a program. And so we had this group of peer educators, and um, one summer the Department of Labor funded uh, uh, you know a jobs program for kids in Somerville, and. Um, they mandated that the kids should have five hours or six hours of counseling, well, like an hour a week for, for, for the six-week period of, of their employment. And, you know, this was like several hundred kids, and, and the, the counselors were going to be these college students who didn't know the kids. You know, it was just a silly idea. And um, the leader of the, the, the head of the program was somebody I, I worked with, and she said, you know, instead of that, let's bring them in and have them do three two-hour workshops, and let's have them do one on alcohol. 
And so we had these, you know, hundreds of kids who were going to troop into our office in Somerville, and we had to look, turn to our, our peer educators and say, can you do a two-hour workshop? You know, and we designed a workshop for them to do with these kids. And um, we discovered very quickly that there were kids in the workshop who our kids could recognize as coming from alcoholic families. And we could re- they could recognize them easily because they were from alcoholic families. We didn't know it at the time. We only, there was only one kid who was actively dealing with her parental alcoholism, and the others were, were hiding it like most kids will. Um, but they could recognize the kids who were struggling with this because we were talking about you know, how most people drink alcohol and drink it responsibly, and all they had ever experienced was abuse. So we started to, to understand that this was a, that while we wanted to reach all kids through the te- their teachers, there were certain kids who we needed to reach really badly, and we needed to reach them with interventions that might actually help them think about what they'd lived through differently. Because this was a very important piece of it that you find in Piaget, you find in a lot of places, which is it's not really what the circumstances are, it's how the kid understands the circumstances. If anybody's explaining that this is not your fault, that there's nothing you can do to stop the drinking, that you still have to live your life and find your pleasure. You know, there are certain things that enable a kid to reframe what's happening so that they don't blame themselves and they don't respond in the same kind of negative ways. And by negative ways, I also, I, I include trying to be perfect at everything. And, um, we were able to develop a program where, where we had kids just working with other kids who had grown up in alcoholic families and structured psychoeducational groups, what we would now be called cognitive behavioral therapy type groups for kids from alcoholic families as one part of what our program was. And um, coming out of that, I realized that it needed to be written up. And um, so I, I did a book called Broken Bottles, Broken Dreams, and um, it was expressly intended for people who work with kids, um, teachers and nurses and probation officers and social workers and other kids, right, who have friends. Um, And I was fortunate. It got got very wide circulation and... um, it was it was odd having that early in my career, that kind of success. I mean, people would write to me and tell me how the book had changed their lives and everything. Um, and it was you know very fulfilling. My whole career has been largely focused on how people who aren't public health people and aren't even health people um, may not even be professionals themselves are actually really, really important change agents for health. And that settings like schools and other settings that are not primarily, you know, designed to be about health are really about health. That's been a big focus for me, both domestically and globally. And by the way, um, there's, we pay a lot of lip service to the notion that if you, that we can learn from what's going on in other parts of the world and not just that they can learn from what we've already done here. But, um, but it's really true and we're, not that, we're often not that good at making sure that we, we sort of translate going in both directions from, from, uh, because there are some great things that we're starting to learn from 
going on in in, um, in less developed countries. How did you get involved with Harvard Catalyst? I'm not exactly sure how I got to Catalyst. I mean, I, 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 Karen Emmons was the dean for research at the School of Public Health, and she knew me and she knew my work, and she knew that I had been involved in my time at Harvard in a variety of um, interfaculty initiatives um, so that, you know, I kind of knew my way around the labyrinth that is Harvard, but she knew that I had done a lot of work at the community level. I was just coming off of spending more than 10 years developing a center for the, for the support of peer education in South Africa as part of the response to, to HIV AIDS there. And um, so she knew that I could sort of live in both, both the academic and the community worlds. And she was bringing a, more of a public health T4 emphasis to Catalyst. And so she brought me with her. And um, we started working on how Catalyst could be more involved in improving population health. For me, this was really just a way of saying, look, um, what do big in research institutions like Harvard, with all the resources they have, is the most that we can expect of those institutions that they do little projects in the community, the kinds of typical projects that get done when people talk about community-engaged research? And don't, don't mistake me. I, I, clearly, academia and academic research produces major important benefit. People dive deep into their, their disciplines and advance our knowledge that, and so on. But when it comes to actually applying what we already know to what we do in complex communities in a way that can be coordinated and sustained and produce results, you can't, you can't Mickey Mouse it. It's bigger than that. And institutions as big as Harvard need to make a more concerted effort. So coming to Catalyst gave me an opportunity to, to um, try to um, work on a grander scale in terms of what, uh, what Harvard's contribution could be. And we started working intensively with the Mass Department of Public Health because our reasoning was that, you know, that department more than any other is responsible for the health of the six million plus people in the Commonwealth. And that there was a lot that Harvard could do bringing its own strengths and its own sustainable resources to improving how the Department of Public Health can do its job. And that's especially true in terms of research capacity, evaluation capacity, the use of all this data that is now out there that's being collected but not necessarily linked and not necessarily used. Um, the departments of public health across the country don't have sufficient capacity, sufficient resources to analyze the data that they collect um, and to then use it to evaluate their own policies and programs or to know what to try next. Numbers tell a story, but they don't tell the whole story. And um, they can actually be misleading. We can make assumptions about what those numbers mean when we get them and we can see that they're statistically significant. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we really know enough about the lives of the people that they, they're trying to say something about, whether that's people in, you know, kind of in poor or minority communities, or whether it's patients, or whether it's providers, or whoever the subjects are. Um, the numbers represent, may represent something that's accurate and that's specific, but people are complex, whether it's in their, the lives they live or the work they do. And, um, and 
we often don't know very much about those complexities. And mixed methods gets behind the numbers and enables us to learn more than we would if we just looked at the numbers and assumed that we know what their, what it, what their meaning and implications are. So it's, in a way, it's a recognition of our limitations as researchers and our humility. And I think that people who've been trained exclusively in quantitative research sometimes have trouble understanding that, you know, when it's done well, and especially when it's integrated with quantitative research, qualitative research, which is, you know, interviews, focus groups, observations, amplifies both the qualitative and the quantitative, and they derive strength from being mixed with each other. So in order to hear the voices of the people behind the numbers, we really do emphasize mixed methods research, and, and it's now something that federal funders like NIH and PCORI require, and I think that's a good thing. In reflecting upon your career and experiences, what pearls of wisdom would you give to an early researcher? I would say it's important to trust your instincts, that sometimes what, it, what feels like drift isn't drift, that there's a reason that you're headed in one direction, not another. There's a reason that you find more compelling this work and not that work. Um, and it's really important to honor that, I think, because there's just a lot that we, we don't know we know, you know? I mean, it's, everything isn't linear and literal. And there's, I, I, I mean, as, as one example, I got into this work with children of alcoholics. It felt completely accidental. But why I was good at it and why I knew that it had to be written up and why I was able to write it up with some sensitivity was not because I came from an alcoholic family, but it was the commonality of living with mystery. Every kid who's got kind of odd things and weird things and unfortunate things happening in their family, for example, um, is living with some mystery and doesn't know why it's happening and has to construct their own interpretation of it. And I needed to revisit that in my, in my own family in a way that I had no understanding of at all at the time. And I think that, I think that we sense opportunities. Probably we also sense dangers, um, you know, without always able to, being able to articulate why this is, this is an opportunity. Um, I also think that uh, it's really important to keep opening doors. You just never know where things lead. And so, you know, and kind of when something turns into a buildable idea, when a relationship becomes a collaboration, these things just can be surprising. And I guess the last thing I would say is that it can be very especially being at a place like Harvard, it can be very seductive. You get all sorts of interesting work to work on, and you can fill your life with work. And that'd be a real mistake. I have three kids, and I spent a lot of time raising my kids. You know, I kind of took myself off the fast track to spend as much time as I could with my kids. That was a good decision. And um, whatever it is that gives you pleasure outside of work, is really important to be committed to, be dedicated to, just as you, you know, we're, we're often so mindful and so planful about our work. It's good to be somewhat planful about your life that way too. 
Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Join us the first Wednesday of each month for a new episode. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. <laughs>